me. From Studio P in Sausalito, the home of the hit, it's time for... Suck-a-tack. The number one award-seeking comedy podcast about comedy. Podcast. And here's your host, internationally recognized comedy podcast podcaster, Mark Hershaw. Hello, and yes, it's me, Mark Hershon, your host and Surgeon General for Epi 109 of Succotash, the comedy podcast podcast. This was supposed to be a Succotash clip show, but along the way, I managed to get an interview in with Greg Proops, host of the Smartest Man in the World podcast and a veteran of TV's Whose Line Is It Anyway? His first book, The Smartest Book in the World, hits both online and bricks and mortar bookstores this week on Cinco de Mayo. So I've made a command decision to push back the clips for another week or so and put this edition of Succotash Chats up instead. Here's a sample of my upcoming convo with Proopco. Say, say you're not on the scene, you're in the bench, but you can enter the scene and you see something happen. And at that very moment, you think of the perfect thing to stick in there. Ten seconds later, it's gone. The moment's not right anymore. Right. The timing's not right. So that brilliant thought you had is gone. Yeah. You, had to, you have to let it... What does is, what is George C. Scott say in the movie, Patton? This too will change like a, a planet spinning off into its orbit. That's how I always think of it. It's like yeah. electrons. And I'll think, ooh, if I could have just jumped out there, and then you have to let it go. Absolutely. You have to let it go. Absolutely. And then never think about it again. Like Maybe remember it to use it in another situation, but never try to jackhammer. Uh, the worst improv is unconfident improv and, and improv where you can see people trying to jackhammer their ideas. As you can probably tell by that snippet, we were in a rather noisy Hollywood eatery for the course of this interview. Now, I've done my best to filter out as much of the background noise as I could, but it's still going to sound like you're eating lunch at the table with us. It's also a long interview, so you're probably strapping in for the longest succotash show to date. Relax. And if you want to take it in over the course of several sittings, well, be my guest. We've got a couple of things to get to before we launch into our interview. One of them is our burst o durst segment. We've actually got a double dose of durst because, well... I keep falling behind, wouldn't you know? I'm going to play one now and then another burst of durst at the far end of our visit with Greg Proops. But in this installment, our favorite political and social commentator announces the start of the presidential derby. Hey guys, Will Durst here to say, and they're off. Yes, indeed he do. The starting gate to the 2016 presidential derby has officially been flung open wider than the gap between George Bernard Shaw and Pee Wee Herman. Backstage at the Bolshoi Ballet in the snack bar adjacent to the Professional Bowlers Association Hall of Fame gift shop. Concrete and mirrors. Dr. Senator Indian Chief Rand Paul, Tea Party stalwart, and son of RuPaul was the first to follow Ted Cruz in announcing his candidacy for the Republican nomination. Paul has tied his campaign to defeating Congress, which is sort of odd since he is a member. Psychoanalysts might describe this as a patriotic form of self-loathing or expedient positioning. His slogan is, defeat the Washington machine, unleash the American dream, which seems about five words too long for the typical voter's attention span. From America's dangling appendage comes Florida Senator Marco Rubio, who announced he's running as the young whippersnapper come to take the reins of government back from the old guys. He's charming and camera-ready as all get-out, but has the gravitas of dandelion fuzz, and is viewed as vulnerable from the right due to actually suggesting a compromise on immigration, which ticked off hardliners in the party of no so badly they almost dropped their burning crosses. 
The good news for Rubio is he doesn't have to worry about peaking too early. And finally, Donald Trump plans to form an exploratory committee that will investigate the possibility of him maybe considering a presidential run. Why? Because America needs decisive leadership, that's why. He said he will make an announcement in June or July, or whenever NBC decides to premiere the new edition of his stupid reality show. On the other side, there's Hillary Clinton, but that deserves a whole commentary by itself, don't you think? For Succotash, the comedy podcast podcast, I'm Will Durst. Find more Will Durst later on in this show, or visit his home site at willdurst.com. All right, let's get into my chat with stand-up comedian and improviser and now author Greg Proops. He and I go way back to when we were both in the Comedy Underground, which was the house improv group at the San Francisco Punchline way back in the mid to late 1980s. We hit on that and a whole bunch of other topics in this conversation. Once again, apologies for the incredible sound of restaurant noise, courtesy of the King's Road Cafe in Los Angeles. I didn't even edit around the food being brought to the table or the waiters interrupting us occasionally. I hope you enjoy it. We really had a great time catching up. So, Greg, um, yes. let's talk about your book first. Okay. Oftentimes when people have interviews, they go, well, we'll get to the book. Then they save it for the last three minutes. Let's talk about the book. Let's talk about the book first, then we'll talk about our, our rich and patterned history. All right. <laughs> uh, so... I haven't had a chance to really read very much since I just got the book a couple of days ago, but I have skimmed through it, and one of the things that delights me about it is you often hear, well, what, what's the voice of the book? You know, what, what does the author sound like? The author of this book sounds exactly like you. Oh, good. I mean, it is written as you speak. So people that like the smartest man in the world and your delivery and your verbiage, I think will instantly get a feel for the material in this book, the way it's presented. Well, I appreciate that. That's enormously gratifying. That, that was the hardest thing was to try to get close to the voice on the podcast as close as I could. At the beginning, I thought about transcribing the shows and making out the book. And early on, uh, my editor, Matthew Benjamin, said, get out of the first person. And, and after I read some of the transcripts and stuff, there's way too much backtracking and and uh, yeah. uh, and so it, it's not coherent enough. And also, it doesn't read. Talking doesn't read. It doesn't. So uh, I decided to write instead of because someone said to me, "Why don't you speak it into a tape recorder and then print out what you say?" And I thought, well, I could. Uh, but I remember seeing Steve Allen years ago. And this is no knock on Steve Allen. He <laughs> he, he wrote lots of books and he. Was, I got to meet him once, and he was very kind, and he sent me a bunch of books. Uh, but uh, he spoke his books in your tape recorder. I, I, when, he, when I saw him speak, he, he talked about his process, and he said, I dictate them, and then I give them to my stenographer, and she types them out. And my wife, Jennifer, said, well, that's exactly how they read. Interesting. <laughs> and I thought, hmm. Uh, well, that, that to me, I, I can see why it was a challenge, because it does read like you sound, which is not easy to accomplish to capture truly someone's voice in print. And oftentimes you see it done poorly the, the other way around. Um, my wife was a big fan of that show on NBC this last half season, The Slap. And that, along with something like Sex in the City, which was very popular, but what, my beef was that... 
Yes, please. Can you do me a bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwich? Is that possible? Which one? Okay. Yes, please. Uh, can I get the breakfast quesadilla? Thank you. Thank you. Um, but Sex in the City and the Slap, to me, suffer that thing that they sound like people write. You know, when you hear the dialogue, right. it doesn't sound like people talk. Right, right. The, the, the dialogue's very arch, and it just doesn't sound naturalistic. Your thing, like I said, you've managed to capture the way you speak. And it's funny you talk about, you tried to do it by recording yourself, but you realized, no, I have to write this. But I, so how did you capture writing in your books? Well, I would try to write it uh, like I would say it, but with a little, with, a, with an eye toward someone has to sit down and read this thinking they're on a plane or they're in a chair or whatever they're doing and that repeating yourself a million times and cursing a lot and, and all the elliptical nonsense that comes with you can say bullshit the way I spiel huh? you can say bullshit if you want yeah. <laughs> the, the elliptical bullshit the way I spiel uh, doesn't read as I was uncomfortable reading it and I thought well if I don't think it's funny I want it to be funny so that, that was sort of how I tried to approach it, like that. And then, of course, now now that it's done and in hardcover, I want to rewrite everything in it and put more jokes in and make it funnier and more accessible. I have a hint for you. Never read it again. Yeah. And then, right? <laughs> the problem is I'm going to be going to all these book events. And they're going to want me to read it. And I'm going to be like, look, let me just make this part up here. Let me improve what I wrote here. Because uh, as I read it or, or look at it, I think, Oh, that could have been better, you know. But um, but isn't that the nature of what you do as a stand-up, as an improviser, even as an actor? You're constantly trying to, what's the next iteration of this joke? Mm -hmm. You know, where's the button? Where's the tag? Where's the this? So, yeah, it's hard to put something essentially in stone. Yeah, see, right? that's because that's what it is. It's like chiseling it into marble. And then you have to stand and look at it with everyone else. Uh, like, for instance, there's a joke about the police in there that I think is from my stand-up hack. Was it... Uh, something about Sting in the music section, and I say, if you were going to form a band, what would be the uncoolest name you could possibly give them? I'm going with the police. And then my wife, like two weeks ago, goes, and by the way, they were on the IRS record label. And I'm like, that would have been hilarious. Yes. <laughs> so that one didn't get in. Interesting. A little, a little after the finish line on that one. Second edition. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and I think I say at the end of the book, uh, when, when it was finished, and I know nothing about publishing it because this is my first book, so it's all new to me. Uh, oh, I need, I need, because of the pagination, I need I need four or five pages at the end. And I thought I was done writing it, right? Yeah. So I wrote a couple more pages, and I wrote, uh, the next book, there'll be less baseball. I promise. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, if there's another book, goddammit, there'll be more this, more this, and less this. Yeah. I said, there's a lot of poetry in this book, and I was like, Next time, maybe a little less poetry. I thought it would be good for you, you know. Interesting, yeah. But I thought, well, he gave me a chance to kind of back off the book a little at the end, and I thought, all right, I'll do it. it it's supposed to be funny anyway, and yeah. hopefully that's the... I was surprised that I got a couple of good reviews from uh, places that are notoriously humorless, with, like Kirkus and uh, Publishers Weekly. They don't really read books and, like, sit around slapping their thighs over them. <laughs> so I thought, well, if they thought it was funny or amusing at least, yeah, yeah. then we're 100 feet ahead of them. Uh, and the other thing when I first came up with the idea was uh, this this company, Touchstone, does a lot of those comedy like, uh, you know, like the Chelsea Lately books. 
Like everyone in Chelsea wrote a book, but all their books are, uh, I did this, I did this, I got drunk, I did this. So that made it easier for me to go, I'm not going to do that. The books, I have something to make the book about, and the book is about the podcast. So I can talk about all the things I love, funk music, baseball, history and women, literature, uh, movies, poetry, poetry, uh, and that'll be the book. Instead of, uh, I did this and I did that and I did this and I did that. Because I could write a book about my fabulous, you know, getting high on the road or whatever the fuck the book is. But I thought, let's make it, let's make it have some stuff in it. Stuff that you, so having done that, I had to pay a fact checker a fortune, <laughs> a fortune to fucking go through this thing. And she was a very nice lady, Miss Tate. Uh, she's in Virginia. And she was contesting me on everything. Like, she goes, uh, I, oh, and this, this is love. Like, oh, there's a baseball thing in where I said, uh, uh, somebody, Nolan Ryan or someone, pitched for 100 years. And I get a note back that says, they didn't pitch for 100 years. <laughs> and I was like, but it's a joke. Okay, never mind. You know, you know. So is she by de facto the smartest woman in the world? Uh, no, she's a, a highly uh, sought after fact checker. Uh, and I don't, she didn't have the highly, most highly developed sense of humor in the world. If you don't get the difference between sending someone pitch for a hundred years or this, or this costs a zillion dollars, you know, cause I, you know me, everything's hyperbole off the top of the end. So it's, a, it like it's a gajillion these and a bazillion these. What was it like having your observations shown back to you through that lens? It was hilariously, uh, um, illuminating uh, as to my own predilections for, uh, you know, exaggeration and lying, and uh, which came into high relief. And then also, like, one of the giant chapters in the book is about Satchel Paige, one of my heroes, right? And if there's one person who'd ever told the truth ever, it was Satchel Paige, right? Because it's like, if, if the story gets in the way of the truth, let's tell the story. So he made a whole swatches. Not that he didn't do everything he said he could do. Sure. I believe, uh, was it Dizzy Dean? It ain't bragging if you can do it, right? Um, she she writes me and says, uh, I don't know that Satchel Page met his wife at the Howard Grill in, in Pittsburgh, right? At the Crawford Grill. And I'm like, but his wife was working there when he was playing there, and then they got married in the grill. So I'm like, it's just, I'm as certain as I can be, having read, oh, I don't know, a dozen books about him. That's fantastic. And I I thought, if there's one person, and so I say, I think I say it in the book somewhere, if there's one person you can be sure who's not telling the truth, it's it's Satchel Paige. He's the most, you know, the greatest storyteller, yarn spinner. And then I I struck out, you know, so-and-so, and and the ball went so far that it came down two days later, and, you know, those kind of stuff. He talks about beating a snake to death in the outfield. You know, like, shit, it's just fantastic. And you're like... Why call him on it? It's right. too late to call Satchel Page. That's funny. Uh, Beyond fact checking. So that was that made me laugh. And then uh, you know, no matter how many times you go through it, like I just wrote, I read it for books on uh, on tape or whatever they call them now, audio books. Yeah, yeah, 
like you go, oh. you're reading, you go, what the? Oh, yes. No. There's mis, there's mis, uh, prints. There's, uh, there's extra words. Yeah, going yeah there's shit that's wrong. There's, uh, one of the, one of the sentences makes no sense whatsoever. But it's like doing ADR. You can at least fix it in the audio. I did. And then yeah. there's a few and he's going to like, are you going to read it the way it is? I'm like, hell no, I'm not reading it the way it is. I'm reading it the way it should be because this is terrible. <laughs> uh, and I thought, I've been through the book three or four times, easily. Uh, I'm sure the assistant editor, Elaine, has been through it a dozen times. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Matthew's probably gone through it. He had to read every goddamn word of it. You know. Yeah. And yet still stuff gets through. Isn't it amazing? It's, it's extraordinary to me. And then, you know, uh, Jennifer did the artwork, and uh, there was no parameters on that. They didn't even tell her, like, what format to... Finally, we kind of figured out how they wanted it, so it was basically she would draw something on a piece of paper and we'd mail it to them. And that's how it all got in there. That's fantastic. And then the first few drafts, like the uh, the galleys and whatnot, the artwork looked terrible. And I was like, it isn't going to look like this, is it? This looks like mud. And they're like, oh, no, no, no. That's just how the first ones are. I'm like, you know, I don't know that. Right, you've never done it before. Exactly. So it's a very long learning curve. And um, So let's talk a little bit about, I mean, the book's very eclectic. There's a lot of different subjects covered. There's a lot of uh, material sort of jumbled together oh, in yeah. different fashions. Which it's is, not what you read all the way through, I think. Well, I was going to say, um, it's a little bit like a 21st century version of a bathroom book. Yeah, I was going to say, it's a toilet book. Down you know, where you can sit and kind of open it anywhere? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And if you don't like that part, skip through. Yeah. Something yeah. funny will happen in a minute. So was it more time-consuming than you thought it was going to be? Yes. Uh, my alcohol and drug use kept me from uh, writing it as uh, disciplined. Uh, I, my lack of discipline was uh, evident. Uh, I mean, if you asked me to put an act together, I could do it. If you asked me to get up and improvise something for half an hour, I could probably do that, too. If you'd asked me to improvise the book, I could have improvised the book. But to sit down and write it was a whole other bag. So I'd take it on the road with me, and I'd be in, like, I remember being in Calgary a year ago, and it was freezing outside, so there was really nothing I could do. I couldn't go out, and I was chopped in the room with it, and I would just stare, the book and I would square off, and I would just stare at it. <laughs> it's like, what was that line someone once said? Uh, Dylan sits in his room glowering at the Bible. <laughs> I would just sit in my room glowering at the book. That's the book would glower back at me. And I think, not today. You know, fuck you. Yeah. And then I'd sit down and write a thing. And of course, the thing you start to get into it once you write. You That's know, right, yeah. Once you get into the process, then you're like, oh, then it all starts pouring out. And then it's a matter of, oh, my God, did I get everything wrong? Because, like you say, there's there's different subjects in it. And some of them require facts. So I can't just... <laughs> oh, facts. You know, because Ryan Stiles, who I've worked with for 100 years, we, we've been riding in a bus together for, you know, 16 years. And I bored everyone shitless. Yes, thank you. Thanks. Can I get a, a setup and a napkin and uh, some cream also? Thank you. I bored everyone senseless with all my stories about Julius Caesar and Ty Cobb and you know I haven't changed. No. <laughs> And he said to me... But that material must come out somehow. Right. He said, you should do a book. 
where you talk about history, but talk about it the way you talk about it. Because cause otherwise it's boring. But you'll go like, this dude's insane, and he wore a helmet and blah, blah, blah. So I thought, well, I'll try to do that. And I got close. It's not exactly what I want, but it's as close as I can get for this first try. Uh, well, you talk about the experience of writing alone. The book I did, uh, like I said, it originally started out as a comedy book. That we, and I was writing it with a partner. And we, we pitched it to an agent. He pitched it to about a dozen publishers. And Little Brown came back and said, if you guys, business books are really hot. This was 2008. So if you could redo this as a business book pitch, we'd be very interested. So we did. So it's a, it's a somewhat humorous... So it wasn't a... It, you didn't start out writing it as a business book? No. Oh. No. Uh, fortunately, my, my writing partner on it has written business books before. He was a co-writer of uh, a couple of books, the, the Art of Innovation and the Ten Faces of Innovation. So, and he and I actually had gone to high school together. We hadn't seen each other in years, but we ended up with offices in the same building in Sausalito. But anyway, I go, this is going to be great, because I've I collaborated on screenplays before. You go, you got someone to kick you in the ass and get the thing done. Book, different story. Really? Oh, yeah, by about the third chapter, I'm just looking at him, just thinking, would you just shut the fuck up? Can I get some dreams? Just like, I stop talking. Please, just stop talking. Really? Well, he's very, he comes from a highly journalistic background. Right. And I was just... You know, we were interviewing people for this book, and it was all about dealing with difficult people in the workplace. And we would we would uh, put on t we had T-shirts made that said "I hate people." And we would go to the bars in downtown San Francisco and hang out around 5:30. So people were coming in from offices, and the T-shirts would start the conversation. We'd have them talk about their job, but nobody would let us use their name in the book. Thank you. And John was a stickler for well, we got to get these facts about the. I said, but no one's giving us their name. They're not even telling us where they work. They just say they work in an office. Yeah, but we got to figure out what they... I said, we can make this stuff up. We've got 50 stories. Let's just... No, no. We've got to find the thing. It's like... Oh. In the end, I'm glad he kind of held to his journalistic tenets. Because it gave the book some legitimacy, which was great. Right. So it has to be Jane, 34, who works at... That's right. Yeah. 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 But so you've got a fact checker kind of at the tail end of the process, right? But... The main part of the writing, you're just kind of freewheeling when you get a chance to write and do all that. Now, was it was the writing process an interruption to the rest of your life, or were you able to compartmentalize and just go, I'm going to write while I'm in a hotel room or while I'm at home and I've got nothing to do? Or well, were you just like, I've got to get this done? Right. It was, it was a combination of all of those. I tried to make it part of my life. Um, I'd be sitting at home trying to write it, and my wife would be playing music in the office, and I'd start to boil and get mad at her and she'd go, hey, fuck you, you know? And I'd be like, I've been there. I'm working. And she's like, um, I'm working. But why don't you just do your fucking work? And then I'd go on the road. But I got all day Saturday because, uh, you know, you don't got to do the radio or whatever. So, of course, Friday night after the late show, stay up till three, <laughs> wake up at noon, and then look at the book. It's on the table going... Housekeeping. Yeah. And then housekeeping. you're like, I gotta go eat lunch. <laughs> so, so you take the book with you because you're conscientious and it sits in your bag while you're at lunch. I brought it with me everywhere. Um, I wrote some of it on planes and hotel rooms in my home at home. Uh, I had to do jury duty. I wrote a lot of the Caesar chapter on jury duty because I had 12 hours in a room sitting. 
So I plugged my little computer in the horrible room that Mickey sat in, and I and I wrote a lot of that. Um, there was all these other things that were going to be in the book, which is why I'm so interested when you say you weren't even setting out to write a book about business, but they said to you, write a book about business. Because I set out to write a whole other book, and it became this book. Yeah. And I think it's organic, and there's no way to avoid it. Uh, I was going to do a chapter on Cleopatra. I was going to do a chapter on Mark Antony. Uh, and about halfway through, about a year in, my editor goes, uh, we have enough of that. And I go, well, what about this and this? He's like, well, one thing, the chapter on Alexander and the chapter on Caesar were way longer. They were cut down to readable length. Like, they were books on their own. It was a book about Alexander, and it was a book about, a short book. <laughs> and he goes, he said to me, that's not what this book is anymore. This is another book. Those are elements of it. And so don't fucking freak out and write more about that. Take what you've got there, we're going to cut it down, and he, and I cut it down, and then he cut it down more. So, of course, the parts I wanted got cut out, but that's how it goes. Yeah. So it, it evolved on its own almost. And then most of the ideas for everything were mine, uh, Jennifer's, except for, and this is where someone, an outside voice is most helpful. I've been talking about stealing pieces of art on my podcast. And I said to him, I can't for the life of me think how I'm going to do this in a book. And he went, why don't you call it 10 pieces of art I wish I had the balls to steal? And so that's what the chapter's called, 10 pieces of art I wish I had the balls to steal. And I'm a big believer, even though I like to freestyle, I'm a big believer in uh, uh, guidelines and parameters because rather than there's a difference between a corporate edict that where people sticking their dick in your work and trying to change it and having a direction and it, it's the difference between a good movie or a good book or a good performance or good I mean a lot of it just really does work in the improvisation where the idea comes up organically, as you're talking about with this book, and you follow that. Yes. Until organically it might change your direction. What happens? But yeah, you've got to have that those signposts that take you there. And for people that don't understand how improv works, it's very ephemeral. The signposts aren't in any; they're in quicksand, and they're completely malleable, but they have to be. And sometimes, and you know, this happens all the time in improv, but no one ever talks about it. Say, say you're not on the scene, you're in the bench, but you can enter the scene, and you see something happen, and at that very moment, you think of the perfect thing to stick in there. Ten seconds later, it's gone. The moment's not right anymore. Right. The timing's not right. So that brilliant thought you had is gone. Yeah. You, have to, you have to let it... What does George C. Scott say in the movie, Patton? This, too, will change like a, a planet spinning off into its orbit. That's how I always think of it. It's like yeah. electrons 
and I'll think, oh, if I could have just jumped out there, and then you have to let it go. Absolutely. You have to let it go. Absolutely. And then never think about it again. Maybe remember it to use it in another situation, but never try to jackhammer. Uh, the worst improv is unconfident improv, and, and improv where you can see people trying to jackhammer their ideas. And yeah, you know, you're playing you know, some pickup game of freeze tag in a comedy club somewhere, and you see those poor jack-offs that are just, they're waiting for someone to get in a position that looks like they have a gun because they've got this great cop scene uh-huh. they're wanting to do. And it's a, I mean, I was down here, this was years ago, and I, I, I don't want to bust him, but he doesn't want to do my podcast. I was doing improv up to the lab factory with Overton and Jeff Garland and a bunch of people, and Harlan Williams. Yeah. And Harlan never came off the backup line the entire time. They're out there doing freeze tag for 20 minutes. Right. He just never had anything. So it just got interesting. I mean, he wasn't willing to just say freeze and jump out there. So it's just interesting to watch the signposts come and go. Sometimes you have to pull the ripcord. Yeah. And go out there with nothing. And then, what a Del Close always say, you know, come in with something big. Yeah. But sometimes you don't have anything. And you walk into a scene or you walk into a freeze tag and you're like, I have the slightest fucking notion of what I'm about to do. And then you do something and then hope that the other person... That's how I, that's how I sold my second movie to the Hallmark Channel. Literally. My first movie I did was being edited. And I was, in the, I was actually invited into the editing room by the producer because the director had to go out of town for a few days. And he goes, uh, I don't want to cut anything out of here that needs to be in the story. Which is, you, always, all these great Hollywood stories. This is one of my favorites. I said, well, everything's in the script. He said, I don't read the script. I just look at the footage the director gives me, and I just, to me, it's just a big jigsaw puzzle. Right? Okay, well, I'm glad you called me in. But anyway, we were taking a break, and I was walking down the hall, and the guy who was the EP on my movie called me into his office. He said, hey, I just got a call from Hallmark. Do you have any Halloween movies? I go, well, I've got an idea for one, which I didn't. Well, tell me about it. Okay, so I just started spewing this idea. And he goes... And then written down, I said, well, I have an out, the outline back in my apartment. He goes, well, send it to me. So, left, went home, run home wrote, right. wrote the outline, 10 pages, sent it, and he submitted it to the network. Three weeks later, we got a call. They're going to do the Halloween movie. I, I have five weeks to write the script. And I go, did they send the outline back? Because I don't remember what I submitted. <laughs> so, you sold it? Yeah. Did they make it? Yes. Wow. Yeah. What Halloween movie was it? Uh, it's called... Um, Monster Makers. Uh, and it's about a kid who finds an old black and white monster movie that he's never heard of. He's a big fan. It's locked in a trunk in the basement. And uh, this uh, old man, that his mom, who's a nurse, is taking care of as the director. And he uh, invites this little girlfriend over there, like 12 years old, to show her the movie on Halloween. And uh, the movie's been printed on uh, experimental stock, radium acetate. Thank you. And lightning hits the house, and the monsters get out of the movie, along with the sheriff who's trying to capture them. And the sheriff's such a doofus, he has to enlist the kids' help to track down the monsters. Well, I should hope so. It's yeah. a Hallmark movie. Yeah. So that, I mean, was, was that what you pitched him in the room? Yes. You thought of that off the top of your head? I did. And I just, because, you know, being an improviser, you just watch your audience. Yeah. So I just watch. As soon as his eyes start to kind of wander, yeah, 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 yeah. I come up with something else. Right. Kind of Instead of when they go, oh, yeah, well. And then, uh, then, when I sent him the outline, he called me on the phone. I had the proper amount of outrage, I think, when he would say, there's a couple of th- things in here I would change. And I go, really? Yeah. <laughs> what? 
Was it the editor who said it's a big jigsaw puzzle and they never look at the script? No, it was the producer, the owner of the production company who had the final cut. It's kind of genius, though. It's frightening as hell. And also his admission, I don't really know how to cut comedy. I mostly do westerns. Because I'm from the 50s? Wow. I mostly do westerns. What do I mean? There's, there's so much trust you have to put in with people when you're doing a collaborative. A movie is the most collaborative thing, especially when you're the writer. You're the lowest person on the totem pole, and you're the last person that you're the last one to see the idea before it leaves the station, and then yeah, isn't that idea anymore? The one good thing was my executive producer uh, gave me a chance to be on the set of the first one. I said I want to be there to see the movies. I said, well, we usually let the writers come for a couple of days, and we don't really want them around. Right. He says I have yet to have anybody, you know, say you're fucking up my movie, you know. Yeah. I said. All right, well, just, you know, I'd still like to do it. I'll tell you what. You can come down. We'll put you up at the hotel where the crew... You'll have to pay for yourself. We're not going to pay for you, but we'll get you our rate. And as soon as the director says you're gone, you're gone. All right. So I showed up the first day of shooting. Kept my mouth shut. Uh, by day three, I had saved the director's ass once because of something that he shot wrong because we were shooting out a sequence. And after that, that was good as gold. Mm -hmm. And then the next two movies that got produced. Hey, he is useful. I was there every day, and I was—I had a part in every one of the movies too. Awesome, which was great. But we're not here to talk about me and my movies. We're here to talk no. about you. But I mean, it's all about process, and that. I, I find that like years ago, I did a comedy album, and it was at a club in Texas uh, where they used to, which is no longer there, most of the pity. It was in Houston. It's called the Last Stop, and. Uh, they recorded every set you did on a CD, which was high, in those days the highest technology. So at the end of your week, they, they hand you five CDs, six CDs, whatever. So I thought, well, there's an album here. And I hadn't put any of it in a record. You know, it was all original yeah, and, yeah. and new, new, new. It's 10 years ago. So I knew an engineer, a guy named Mark Rao, who works out in the valley. And he's crazy and sense of humor. He, he thought he was funnier than he was, but he had a sense of humor. And so I said to him, I can't edit this because I'll be going like, I didn't say this right. This verb went behind this adverb. This preposition didn't go with I go, you take it. Here's all the shows. Make one album out of it. So, and a week later, and he got the name of it wrong. I recorded it in Houston, and he called. He sends the CD back to me, and it's Dallas likes me, which I love that he was able to go through listening to five, six, seven sets, and all of them I talk about Houston. And I wanted to call the album Dallas likes me, recorded live in Houston, which I thought would have been a hilarious. Instead, I think it's Houston. We have a problem or something. Which hard it, but. Uh, it came out better than if I'd done it. Because I trusted him to just, like you have a sense of humor, you don't know me that well, and you haven't seen my act a million times. Yeah, yeah. So you're almost not objective, you don't want to. Objective is the stupidest. You're a subjective listener who goes, this one's really funny, I'm putting it here. And this version of this story or joke is better here. Yeah. And so, Ever since then, that's how I've done it with every album I've made. I don't look at them again, although I made one in January, the punchline. 
and now my producer's going to me, you know, make your notes and this and this, and I almost feel like going, my only note is that I want this one particular punchline at the end of this long joke, that it, that, but it only comes from one set. I only feel like saying, you fucking cut it. Yeah, it's like, it's like a jazz and, and think it Right, since you, all they do is make podcasts and make all of Doug Benson's albums and all of my albums and they've done Paul Tompkins' albums. It's like, well, all of us just extemporize constantly. Surely at a certain point you can trust your own editing skill and just go, I'm taking this out and yeah. putting this in. And, and there's tons of material. I mean, an album now is what, 40 minutes? You really don't want it to be an hour. An hour is a long time. Podcast, yes, because people drive in their car a bit. So I find that the book was the same way in so much as you kind of just chuck it at them. And the one one time I got a call where he went, that chapter was awful. But almost every other chapter I call him, you know, you're begging for compliments, you're fishing, you know. <laughs> How was it? Did it read okay? Was it funny? And he'd go like, yeah, it was fine. <laughs> or what really uh, made me feel confident was when he'd say, that was funny. And that's all. That was funny. Because to me, like, that's all I want to hear. If it's boring, please be the first to say, this was fucking boring. You need to rethink this completely. He never said that for one, one long chapter. He went, this, this was a mess, and I expected more from you. And he goes, but I've had Elaine have a go at it, and she fixed it. And I let her, I let the way she fixed it stand. And uh, you have to be a big boy. And take your fucking cocoa. And well, also as I've as I've discovered through all the work I've been doing, both uh, writing wise and regular day job wise with branding and stuff, there's always people that have suggestions and things like that. In fact, one of my biggest uh, sort of eye-opening things about this was on that first Santa Junior movie that I did. But the idea that when it comes to the box score, you're the guy whose name. You got, when it comes to what? When it comes to the box score, you're the guy whose name is on the yeah, stats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like well. The producer's name is on the producer's thing, but they're not, that's not who the audience is saying did this made this funny thing. Yeah, your name. Yeah. I have to stand by this, and I have to stand behind it, and then I have to go on the road and tell everybody it's good and they should buy it. Right. So the chapter that what's her name fixed reads well. They're not going to look for her name in here. They're going, hey. Oh out. no, I thank her. No, you do. But they're <laughs> not looking. The audience isn't looking for her. No. This is Greg Brooks's book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I did. So let's sort of go backwards then. So this this book sort of came out of the structure of things you do for Smartest Man in the World, which is yes. just one of your two podcasts. Yes. Your other podcast, let's talk about that a little bit. It's the Greg Cripps Film Club, and there's loads of chapters in there on movies. And almost every movie in the book we've shown at the Greg Cripps Film Club. So obviously that I, if I was going to do another book that was just a movie book, I could do one called The Greg Groups Film Club, talk about all the movies we've shown at The Greg Groups Film Club, reiterate on them there, and then do the new ones that we that aren't in there. Uh, so, but it gave me another uh, uh, another tack to come in on the book and another way to fill a bunch of chapters, because I think we do, I can't remember how we do it, but it's, I think there's buddy movies, foreign films, you know, we split it up that way. And um, it, it, it gave, rather than go uh, horror film, uh, uh, action film, we did it more proof style. So it's like, uh, these are, I can't remember that. 
And there's no table of contents, which is maddening. Oh, that's interesting. Wh whose decision was that? Not mine, but I... Because uh, now I have to dig for everything whenever I fucking look at it. All right, here's a picture of Buster Keaton. So that comedies. <laughs> so I put Igby Goes Down in the comedy section. Okay. And you've seen Igby. Yeah. And I showed it a couple months ago at the film club. And I'd only watched it at home with Jennifer a hundred times. And we laughed at it every time. Because it's a really dysfunctional, you know, teenage, uh, coming of age, vaguely Salinger-esque. Uh, Plus it used to be the name of a comedy club. Huh? Plus it used to be the name of a comedy club. Yeah, Eggbase. Which I used to play. Uh, and uh, showing it in front of a live crowd. There's teenage sex, teenage drugs in it. There's uh, Odine. There's uh, every manner of mayhem that can happen to a 15-year-old. Sex with older women. Getting beat up by your fucking, you know, person you don't know is your dad and all this. Yikes. Uh, right. No one laughed. Hilarious. Everyone sat rigid like it was the most horrible expose on teenage. And I always said to Jennifer, it's it's not as funny. When we watched it at home, I was crying because we laughed at all the parts where, you know, he has to take a job with a drug dealer because he's got nothing to do. And then selling drugs to his old English teacher and shit. And like, she goes, oh, he used to be in my class. And he's like, yeah. And he's got the coke. And she goes, he used to call me Miss Piggy. And he's like, yeah, I did. <laughs> and at home, we were crying laughing in the movie theater. Everybody's like, oh my God. <laughs> I thought, fuck you. It's still funny. And I'm glad in a, I'm glad it's in the comedy section. I wouldn't change it. Uh, and then we put Rushmore in there, which I happen to adore. But we showed that at the film club. And of course, it kills. People are like pandemonium. Rushmore plays so funny. And it still plays so funny. And uh, I think he was trying for laughs. But the magic of that movie is that Bill Murray is as not funny as he could possibly be. He's never going for laughs. It's a complete 180 from Groundhog Day or any of the movies that precede it with him. It, the, why it's funny is because he's a good actor and he plays everything real. And that's where all the laughs come from. But he doesn't do any of his gooking. He doesn't do any of the faces. He doesn't do any funny voices. None of it. Not a bit of it. And yet it's his best comedy performance because it's nuanced. I mean, I love Groundhog Day. I think Groundhog Day is a sublime comedy. It's, it's as good as any... Uh, 30s or 40s screwball and I think it's in the same category it, you could have made that movie Billy Wilder could have made that movie or Howard Hawks could have made was, that movie and, I was just uh, listening I was and, just listening to uh, Matt Gorley's podcast yeah. I was there too and he had Steve Tabosky on talking about, about talking about being uh, Ned, Ned. Not Ned Ryerson and it was really interesting the way they shot that because it was all dependent on the weather so they they shot <laughs> he said he sh all those scenes he's in, they shot in every kind of weather because they never knew the day had to remain the same. Yeah. So they right. never knew what that day was going to end up being. Right. So every day it rained, they go, okay, we've got to do that scene again. Right. right. Oh my God, of course. Yeah. It's a, it's a movie where continuity is, is the most imperative thing in the entire. Yeah. So he said he, he learned how to do his part by counting the bricks in the street because he had to know where he was of every time they took those. And his part's really huge. He's like a 
to be really obscure about it, like a Charlie Chase character from the 30s. Uh, Charlie Chase did those kind of characters where we go, like at the end when he, she, he says, where are we going to go? And Andy McDowell goes, let's not spoil the evening. He goes, I got that. Like that. And he makes this huge exit. Yes. And it works. At yes. that point in the movie, it works. It doesn't seem unnatural. Yeah. No, because you've already seen him amped up beyond all yes. measure. Yeah. From the first scene, he's completely amped. It was a real Bob Pope kind of movie. Right? Right. It's, it is, it's, it's totally from a, a 40s, you know, the feel of that That's right. comedy. Because no one does that in a modern comedy. No one goes, I get that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you think it's be- it's beautiful for that. It's beautiful for that reason. Yeah, yeah. That it doesn't wallow in its sentimentality, but it lets itself be sentimental. Yeah, yeah. And when he falls in love with her, you're like, and the brilliance of uh, the screenwriter Ramis didn't write all of it. It was no, a category. No writer, yeah. uh, to, to let him, uh, he has to fall in love to be a human being. It's that simple. Yes. Right? It's, the, it's the oldest plot in the world. It's in a million movies. But because of the premise they've done, and when you see him kill himself a million times and try to fuck all the girls and be reprobated and be a horrible person for, we don't know how long, maybe a thousand years, 10,000 years, because there's no counting. Right. Uh, how long this existence? Yeah, somebody actually, I guess, number crunched all the stuff he does in the movie and figured it was like a total of like 34,000 days it would have taken to accomplish everything. Learning how to be a, a, a pianist. Right, he can play. Stuff. He speaks fluent French. Yes. He's an ice sculptor. He's a, he's a concert pianist <laughs> who doesn't need to even. There's no sheet. He's improvising the music at the end. Uh, yeah, no, he's. And of course, it, like a, a Christmas Carol, more than even It's a Wonderful Life, because It's a Wonderful Life's not about what he should have done; it's about what he did do. Yes, he doesn't appreciate what he did do. That's he doesn't right. have to fall in love to be a person; he has to accept that he's a person to be a person. Yeah. And uh, but in, in uh, Christmas Carol, he, he has to fall in love with life again. To, he has to understand what love is to be a person again. Yes, and and that's the same plot as Groundhog Day. Like. What would you accomplish if you were given eternity? Would you learn to speak French? Or would you just get drunk every fucking night? Yes. Yes. And, <laughs> and it does all those. And it, it answers all those. Uh, so, I don't know. And, and obviously, the, the other thing, that kind of, you're trying to write a book like this that hits on all these different things. So, what movies do you put in and what do you leave out? So, Bringing Up Baby's not in there. So, this movie's not in there. That movie's not in there. This book's not in there. That book's not in there. When I did the books, I had a heart attack. At the end of writing the book section, I went, oh my God, there's only like one book by a woman in this whole fucking list. What have I done? You're like Burgess Meredith in that Twilight Zone episode. All, all those books that he breaks his glasses. And I would be, because I, I see that well. It's a very resonant episode. Uh, and then I'd be in the middle of toiling over a music chapter and realize I've left out 15 different artists. And then I have to stop and go, this isn't a definitive encyclopedia. This is a glancing, fun comedy thing that you're supposed to be able to page through. And, you know, I'm not writing like the fucking Britannica here. Uh, But of course, as soon as I look at it, I think, oh, I left that out. Or I'll hear a song on the radio and go, oh, that should have been in. So what... What led you to do the smartest man in the world? I mean, you're already touring, you know, doing your stand-up act. 
doing improv, stuff like that. So what was missing that Smartest Man in the World fulfills? The podcast? For you, yeah. Well, four years ago, uh, right th- in 2010, uh, Matt Belknap and Ryan uh, McManaman, they did Doug Benson's uh, uh, movie podcast, Doug Loves Movies. And we were at the UCB and across the street from the celebrity, Scientology Celebrity Center. As you know, any belief system should have a celebrity center. So it's missing from Christianity, so it's missing from Catholicism. Uh, and uh, they said, do you, want to, you, you should do a podcast. We're sitting outside. And I went, well, what would I do? And so we started kicking around. I said, well, I'd love to do one with authors where I interview authors. And they were like, huh. And then I thought, okay, that's a bad idea. And then I thought about all the podcasts I've been on. Uh, Jimmy Pardo, Mark Maron, Adam Kroll, and whatnot. And I thought, don't interview me. And I'd done a chat show over at Largo for, oh my God, four or five years, you know. And I basically interviewed every comic and musician in L.A. at that, at that time. So the first decision was, I'll do this on my own. And then there was this idea of like taking questions from the audience, which we used to do a lot more of, but now we, it's evolved into not doing that. So we did the first one at Bar Lubitsch. We just booked it. A couple people came. I started talking. I had no idea what I was going to say or do. I had a couple of ideas here and there. I knew that I didn't want to write comedy and read it because I've done podcasts too where people or radio shows, you know, where you go on and they're, yeah, they're reading the script. And, which works if you're a good writer. Like if, if you're David Feldman, yes. Like David Feldman is a brilliant writer. So when he writes a script, it fucking plays. If I write a script, whatever. So I'm better off the top of my head. And uh, at the end of it, my wife says to me, who is my biggest judge and, and uh, uh, partner, you know, and everything, she goes, this is what you should be doing. More than the stand-up, more than the improv, more than anything else. This, this is your milieu. This medium is perfect for the thing you do, which is sit at a table, get drunk, and fucking tell stories and spiel. And then when the politics comes in and all that, you're... You're sincere about it. You're, you're, you're vehement. And that works. Because it's not a TV show. It doesn't have to be... There doesn't have to be an ending. There doesn't have to be this. Oh, be that. So you're a one-man out round roundtable. Right, right, right. For lack of a better... And Phil Bowman, who you remember from San Francisco, we were on the phone. And this is before I did that. And he he's, a, he's such a bright guy and a very good writer. You know, like, Phil's great at, like... Seeing what people's strengths are, you know, and and that's a skill. Comics are not always great at looking at other people, and we're great at reading people. Like, give me a room full of people, and I'll dominate. Yeah. Give me one person, and they're higher status than me. I'm intimidated, <laughs> and you know, then the, then the games are, are different. Uh, Phil says, "Do you know how you come off?" And I go, "No. How do I come off?" And I was be- I wasn't being disingenuous. Although I have a fairly good idea of how I can He goes, like, you fucking know everything. Do a show where you are the smartest man in the world and take questions and brook no dissent. And I said, Great that is, yeah, brook no dissent. That is hilarious. It made me laugh. And it appealed to that. My stand-up characters, of course, 
I'm pontifical. I'm 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 prissy. I'm I'm uh, uh, I'm arch and snide. I, I'm I'm condescending. Uh, at the same time, vaudeville always faces, voices, impressions. I fall on the ground. I I make fun of people. I make I'm not afraid to be an idiot, which I think is essential. I think the one thing Lenny Bruce did better than anything else wasn't so much as obviously developing the majestic point of view that he did is that he never left the bundle behind. That what makes him a great uh, social commentator and political communicator, and Bill Hicks too, is that if you're not doing funny voices and you're not falling on the ground, you're not doing everything that a comic can do, in my opinion. Like, Harlan's my favorite comic, and Harlan might be the best writer off the script of anybody, because his voice out of his head, to the paper, to the stage, is identical. But he didn't improvise, and I saw him once, and he said, I don't improvise, I memorize. Whereas I think, I don't know how Lenny Bruce has processed this, but I assume he went through shit a million times and did it different every time within the framework of, which is why people insist on saying comedies like jazz. And it is up to a certain point, except most comics aren't like jazz musicians. Chappelle is someone I think approaches it like a jazz musician. Yeah. Because he'll do it within the framework of the routine and I'm going to change this, this, this and I'm going to light a cigarette and I'm going to have a drink and I'm going to do a tangent. Yeah, Frank Lidajai would do that. Frank Lidajai is the the original jazz daddy. And, you know, I know Franklin, you know Franklin, like, that's how his mind works, man. He's an academic but he's a high academic so nothing's a straight line. That's right. Everything's an arc. Everything's an ellipse. Everything's a curve, a parabola. Yes. And, 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 I'm, oh, now I'm over here, now I'm over there. Uh, we'll get back to over here because he also has the discipline of being a musician. So he actually has the fucking uh, internal cadence and timing and uh, structure that when you're improvising jazz, you have to hit the same, you have to hit a note. Yeah. You can't just not hit a note. And when you're improvising comedy, you have to hit the words. You have to hit the beats. You can't just skate them or, or blur them or slur them. Right. There has to be some kind of fucking... So... For me, the podcast gives me exactly enough parameters. I know I can't go forever, but I could go two hours if, the, if everybody's happy. Yeah. Uh, I know that I, uh, I, I can't just tell one story, so I can double back constantly. And at my best, I believe, I pick up something that I said at the beginning in the middle, and then everybody goes, you're a genius, because you remembered, we've all forgotten what you said yes. 45 minutes ago, but you haven't. In the depths of your highness, you have not forgotten. And you managed to bring it back and tie it up and put it back in there. So I think that's the excitement. It's like, the challenge is to not repeat myself. And the, 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 the edict is to juggle furiously. Don't always do. But within that, all this stuff's happened, Mark. Like, thank you. Kings McTavish is a character on the show. As you said, my own, I'll go up and round table. I was on a kiddie show on Nickelodeon uh, called True Jackson, and I've watched every one of those children that was on the show with me go on to huge careers. <laughs> Robbie Amel has a series, he's going to do a movie now. Uh, uh, Kiki Palmer just finished on Broadway as Cinderella. <laughs> yeah, I just saw a kid that was in. Uh... Halloween movie with me is in Paul Blart 2. Right. You as, watch them as an adult. Yeah, they're 15 and all of a sudden now they're 21 and like, oh. Yeah. All right, and that, Kiki's got like nipple piercings now and is in 
glamour magazines with sex shots, and I'm like, I can't look at this. Can't I can't. Watch it, no. no, this is my daughter, you know, like, <laughs> gross, you know. And I, see, nipple piercings, you come here, young lady. I'm like, I really want to say that to her. Like, how dare you fucking. Of course, she's an autonomous adult, and she was a teen millionaire, so why, like, who's going to tell her what to do, you know? What do you give a 15 year old with a million dollars? Dante. That's what she wanted. I gave her Dante for Christmas. So she's a nice. Uh, and, and on the show, uh, they would have me, uh, because it was Nickelodeon, whenever I had an expletive, and I was the boss, I was a designer. And as I said to the producers, I'm a designer in New York, and I'm not gay or Jewish. Would you care to explain? <laughs> the premise of the show is I hire her, she's 15, because I like what she, she's wearing something of my one of my pieces. And I go, where did you get that? She's like, 20 years. I'm like, but it's different. And she goes, well, I changed the buttons and I did this. And I'm like, you start tomorrow. You're vice president, right? So how will she get through? Well, with the help of her lovable friends. <laughs> that was the whole premise of the show. Nice, okay. But I love the part that I played because I was Willy Wonka. I put a kid in a candy store. Nice, yeah. I put a 15-year-old girl in a fashion house. <laughs> and so every week, and of course the plot, it's Nickelodeon, so half the time it wasn't about it at all. Right. But they'd have me say kittens as my swear word. Oh. Kittens. I was and wondering where that came from. It was hilarious because and then I started to just use it because it, it stops, substitutes for fuck and I'm, I lean on fuck way too hard. As you know, Joe Kelper. <laughs> and then Kittens McTavish just came out of nowhere. My wife and I used to say this other thing about McTavish. And then we found a cardboard cat at a Christmas store in London. It was orange and bizarre looking. And so then I put it on stage with me. And then I started having the cat go... I hate this show. Like, the whole purpose of Kittens McThomas is to say, the show's boring, the show's pretentious, the show's stupid, will you please change topic? Would you stop talking about this? And I thought that was, and that made me laugh. And then, of course, I have to give voice to the fucking cat because there's no one to do it. And then I called it a girl, I called it a boy, and then that never got established, so I've left it completely asexual. Then all the baseball teams that are in the book, the Roman Emperor baseball team, the Kings of England baseball team, the Kings of Queens, the powerful women baseball team, there's a bombshell baseball team. Everything in the world breaks down into a baseball team. That was not my doing at all. We were taking questions uh, in New York or somewhere, and a guy got up and went, who's your all-time Roman Emperor baseball team? And on the moment, I went, Caligula's catcher because he can handle balls. And it went from there, and then I was in London, and someone went, here's your all-time kings and queens. So I did it off the top of my head. My friend Nick, who's English, comes up to me after the show, and he goes, I was a bit worried for you there, mate. That how many, I didn't know if you knew, because you have to put 12 people on a baseball team, right? You have to have yeah. nine in the field, a couple pitchers, and a manager, concessions, maybe an owner. It's not Nick Rebel, is it? Yeah. <laughs> Nick Rebel. I love Nick. He's great. I me love too. his panel show, by the me way. Me too. He's wonderful. Yeah. And, um... So I, I did that. So those I managed to keep on scraps of paper because when I would do them on the night, I would write them in magic marker, like very poorly, and not remember what I said, but I remembered who was where. So I had a sheaf of papers of baseball teams. So when it came to do the book, I got off the sheaf of paper and I went through them all. Nice. And, and that was how I was able to do those. That was completely organic. I didn't think of it. It wasn't my idea. It's a great idea. Yeah. If anyone had said, Greg, you should do baseball teams, like, I should have thought of that because I love baseball. Came out of the audience. Kittens and McTavish came out of nowhere. Uh, 
I'm a big believer in mistakes. That's why we love improv. Yes. The funniest things that happen in an improv show weren't supposed to happen. That's right. That's right. And the best thing that can happen in your stand-up show is the mic goes out or someone falls over or something happens and the script's gone. And then you're forced to be funny. That's right. Really funny. And uh, I've used the quote too many times, but Leonard Cohen said, cracks are where the light shines through. Like, I love perfection. Uh, I love Stanley Kubrick. I love Steely Dan. Those are airtight things with no humanity in them. Yes. <laughs> yes. The, the knock on Kubrick and Steely Dan, and my wife hates them both. <laughs> she likes Lou Reed and Bob Dylan. They're all passion. They're all poetry. They're all fueled by anger and fueled by frustration and and, 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 and about people that that are horrible people or about people that are prostitutes or junkies or whatever. You know, Lou Reed is such, such an amazing artist that was able to take his upbringing and turn it into this poetry. And he can't sing, and he's not a very good musician, but he's a genius, you know. And you buy the package. She loves that. And I, I said, why do you hate Steely Dan lines? And she said, I'll give you two words, Greg, clean and tight. I hate it. And I love it. You know that they worked for fucking six weeks to make the hi-hat sound the way it does, and they maybe even flew to the East Coast just to record the hi-hat, and then brought it back. And you know, Kubrick's movies are, are brilliant. He hates humanity. That's clear. Uh, after after uh, House of Glory, and, which is a beautiful movie, and Spartacus, by the time we get to uh, a Strange Love and then Clockwork Orange and all that, even Barry Lyndon, which should be, the air has gone out. He, was, he won't allow air into a movie. Humans don't get to exist. They're only props that I push forward and tell them to say these things. And the light's going to be blue and there's going to be Christmas lights everywhere. And, you know, like, you know how I, the, his genius is that. His genius is the unreality. Like you were saying about does dialogue sound forced? When you watch 2001, the pace of that movie, <laughs> it's a glacier. <laughs> and then for 20 minutes, it's a psychedelic roller coaster yeah. out of nowhere. Yes. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's just its own thing. It taxes you. Uh, and I'd love to be that kind of artist, but I'm not at all. And so I feel like if I fuck something up in the podcast, I repeat it. If I say something wrong, I repeat it. And then say it again. And then say it again. And then keep saying it until I go around it a thousand times. And then sometimes something really funny comes out of owning the mistake, jumping on the mistake, you know, I don't know, juggling the mistake, fucking the mistake, whatever you're trying to do. Like, for me, the problem is I love doing the podcast so much that for a year or two, I didn't write anything new as a stand-up. And I could have taken all the shit I did in the podcast and put it right into the app. Because that's what a lot of comics, I think, I don't think a lot of comics do it, but it's certainly a way to do it. But I couldn't bring myself to say the frank things I was saying in my podcast as a stand-up. And I've always been an honest stand-up. I talk about politics. Lately in the last year, I've been able to write more as a stand-up in the voice of the podcast. The difference is, as you know, when you play a comedy club, not everybody's there to see you. Right. Maybe whatever number you want to throw out, 40%, 50%, some bad nights, 70%. They don't know why you. They're there. They're there because it's Saturday. They're looking to see comedy. We heard comedy's good. And you better be funny. 
Um, I remember you on that show where you used to get up with the black guy, when the tall guy. <laughs> you know, most people's understanding yeah. of yeah, yeah, yeah. We care because we're in it. Other people, it's like a movie or a drag race or a piece of fruit or whatever. Oh, that was good. Yeah. I liked it. My sister will say, I saw a comic the other night on TV. What was their name? I don't remember. They were really funny. What they talk about? I don't know. But he had this shirt, you know? Yeah, he had this funny way of talking. Right. And you're like, well, who were they? Yeah, if you could tell me one thing they said, I'll know who it is. Nope. Oh, just washed over. Something about a guy. Yeah. You know, he, I, you know, he, <laughs> he was like, a, he, you know, he was tall. And you're like, <laughs> so, with that in mind, I want to go out there and kill as a stand-up in a different way than I want to kill as a podcaster. I'm not worried when I'm podcasting that I'm going to lose anybody's interest. And I'll say on the show in the middle of it, please don't switch over to Bill Burr or please don't switch over to, you know, I'll name everybody else. And go, I know Joe Rogan's doing something really interesting right now. Like, like you're on some giant radio dial, right? Don't switch out. Don't, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, and I love that. Uh, please don't hit scam. Uh, yeah, I often I often will say stuff on my podcast that goes, now I know the network doesn't want me saying this. Yeah. I, I have no network. Right, I have no network. sponsors. I have nothing. Yeah. yeah, the network doesn't want me saying this, but I know that. Yeah, they're, they're putting the screws on me. <laughs> you know what? I'm going to jump out of the network. But with stand-up, I want it to be a little more perfection, a little more mixture of improv and writing, emphasis on the writing. And then, like you said, you're always honing, you're always fixing as Doug Stanhope said to me brilliantly two years ago, I never fix a routine until it stops working. When, it, when, it, when you're doing something that you've done a long time and it starts to die and no one's reacting to it, then you know you have to go back and perform surgery. Yeah. Uh, yeah a lot of times it's because I think a comic will go into autopilot. Mm-hmm. You do stuff that works, this works, I don't have to work. And we know a comic's like this, done the same act for 25, 30 years. And they're, you know, they won't write anything new. They go, no. This act works. You know, I play. I'll play this club once a year, twice a year, and every yeah. time I come back, people bring their friends because they love these bits I do. Yeah. And they have no compunction about. Oh, I know I wrote that thirty years. I got nothing. Right. There's that, and then, you know, like I'll try to change it. I'll go back, and I'll think, Oh my God, I've been doing this bit here for eight years, and then you don't do it, and someone will come up and go. How come you didn't do the fucking Disneyland thing or whatever? I brought everybody to see it. I'm like, well, I don't do that anymore. Yeah. Yeah, but you should do that one because I like that one. Yeah, suddenly you realize you are like a band. Or though in England, like, I remember doing a, a joke about uh, the cam- there's a camera obscura in England as oh, well, okay. in, in Edinburgh. And it was the stupid throwaway line, like, two children died of boredom or whatever. <laughs> Which isn't even original, you know, it's just throwaway. And uh, one of the newspapers, I think, he's doing four-year-old gags about the fucking camera obscura. Like, not only did they remember, they remembered when I started doing the show. <laughs> and you think, oh no, there's some people listening that are listening like, yeah, isn't that interesting? Oh, you're not going to change that, are you? Or you're doing this, but you're not doing it with any spin. This is far too literal. And English comedy critics will say things like that. No one criticizes comedy very well in America in my opinion, other than you. <laughs> but you know, like you read The Onion or whatever, and I can smell a 31-year-old douchebag from a mile away. 
when you read something, you without even looking at the byline, and I know you know this, you can tell what sex the person is, how old they are, what income bracket they're in, by their writing. By their writing. Yeah, yeah. And criticism is even more specific because now we're talking about all these subjective things. Yeah. And uh, this is going to sound completely churlish, but it's true. They used to review, well, they review all the podcasts in the annual. I don't know if they still do. Well, I don't read it, but yeah, they used to. And I was in it for a long time and then they stopped reviewing my show and I have no idea why. And every week it would be, oh, he's on and on about politics again. And I was like, but that's my show. But you don't say about uh, uh, whomever. You don't say, oh, Paul Tompkins is on a tangent. Yeah. Or Joe Rogan's rambling. Or Chris Hardwick's talking about comic books again. Yeah. Because that's what they do. That's, that's right. the essence. Uh, and to me, I could just see the person. 31-year-old guy, slightly misogynist, a little bit privileged, not very politically aware, bored, much preferring uh, uh, the uh, comedy bang bang to me. Angry that they have to be assigned to my podcast and that it's so long. <laughs> right? It's not an hour. It's an hour and forty five minutes, and you have to sit there through the whole thing. And then, and there's no sense of of hit. Their sense of history is literally the time span of podcasts yes. and nothing that came before that. I love the fact that you were going uh, discussing in your most recent episode. Um, you talked about Stan Freeberg, who was one of my one of my form, forming forces in my life. I mean, I just like I ate everything up that he ever did. I went back in time to get shit that he did, and just am one of the few. Uh, most, anybody who goes into advertising, I'm always slightly suspicious. But his reason for going into advertising and what he did with advertising. And the fact that, and oh, I think so I mentioned it in the obituary, he's in the Radio Hall of Fame, but not the advertising. Yes, yes, because they don't like being paid fun of. Yeah, they have no sense of humor. Yeah. And what was it? He said, "What was his company slogan? Guaranteed to lose a client or whatever." Like, yeah. he absolutely would come at the client and go, "Here's what we're gonna do," and they'd be like, "What the fuck?" You know? Oh yeah, you're you're ruining my product here. And he'd be like, "No, people will remember your product." Uh, no, he's so canny and so inside. And deeply satirical, which is something nobody does satire. Saturday Night Live's not satire; it's parody. Uh, I was listening. The to Daily the, Show's not satire. Oh, I was listening to the uh, Chill Pack Hollywood Hour, which is uh, uh, Dean, Dean Haglund and Phil Larness. Yes. And Phil was talking about Freebergans and had the story that apparently is true, maybe apocryphal, but he lived in like um, I mean, not that far away from here. He was yeah. like uh, in. Um, I can't remember the name of any towns anymore around here. Uh, but uh, he uh, he just said, "I'm taking the bus to Hollywood. And I want to I want to get in that." He was like, "Go Colin or something." And he took the bus. He got off of Hollywood and Highland and went up to the stairs of some agent's office and literally got a voice job that day and never went home again. Right, free bird. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, going to Hollywood. Yeah, going to be Hollywood. Literally just got off the bus. And he was such a great voice talent, too. Yeah. And, of course, the crew, Jesse White and the whole... Oh, it was great. No, I mean, I, I, play, I play, actually posted this 
the day he died was, um, I think I put it on Facebook, but uh, I played, I was in high school and I played his uh, United States of America album in my social studies class in its entirety. It took two days to play it and I got an A for the semester because I played that record in class. And it still stands up. That's so awesome. Well, that's the thing is, I'm not afraid to. I'll talk about ancient history. I realize now that since we were kids, there is no such thing as like a liberal arts education. That's gone. Oh, yeah. So, at first I was always shaky about, like I'd say to Jennifer, surely everybody's heard this or knows this or is familiar with this. And she goes, no, you have to understand they don't. So it's okay to say, this is Mark Twain. Or this is Stan Freeman. Yeah. He did this, 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 this. Here's a uh, So I feel like I'm teaching a College 101 liberal arts course as a podcast. Because if I hit on a topic, I'll stop and go, you need to know what slave patrols were. Or I'm always rewriting American history because I hate how American history gets presented. And obviously Stan Freeberg did too. Yes. Uh, <laughs> They let people come on TV and say things like, uh, if everyone works hard enough, they can get ahead. And things that are patently false. Or that the Civil War was fought and that slavery is over and that we solved it because of it. It's like, no. The Civil War was fought to change slavery into a more workable financial model. It wasn't working anymore. That's right. So let's make it, now we have a prison system. That is our slave system, yeah. where black people are incarcerated and forced to labor for very little money, much less than you got to pay them. And even better than slavery, the state has to pay for their upkeep. That's right. And you don't pay your taxes because you're a corporation. Yeah, so. the landowner doesn't have to worry about it anymore. I mean, in, in the slave state, they had to put them up, they had to feed them, clothe them, presumably give them medical care. Yeah, now that's all been centralized. And, and, you, and you can contract their services. So capitalism, one, the idea that healthcare is a threat to capitalism, all these things, you know. Yeah. But I'm not afraid to go back and hit on all those things and talk about them. And at first I was afraid, I was petrified, um, that kids would reject it or be bored. And I get so many emails where someone will go, I never knew what the Ohio Players were. Really? Something that simple. And now I bought an Ohio Players record and I listen to it all the time. And I love it. And that's just something from our, when we were teenagers. Yeah, it was not, on the radio. You couldn't get away from the right, Ohio Players. Right. You couldn't get away from them. They were on Midnight Special. They were whatever, Don Kirshner's Rock concert. And it's a simple pleasure. But, but now, imagine being a, a 15-year-old. And... So there's the da- there's the dad radio station that plays Aerosmith all day, and, and then there's the Katy Perry station that plays yeah. that shit all day. And say you have some taste and you 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 want to break out of that. Where do you go? What do you do? Obviously, there's the internet and all that. But the internet is an uncollated protoplasmic yes, yeah. grabastic yeah. mass of bullshit. There's no there's no curator to no, take, their hand, take their hand and say let's go this way. If I let you loose in the Library of Congress, you might be well motivated to have to go find something. But most people would wander around in a circle and then sit down and cry because there's too much. Yes. Too much. Yes. So curating is a good deal of it. 
simply going, I, oh, I ran into this topic, let's talk about this topic. And of course, certain things like Thanksgiving or Columbus Day are an endless font of jumping off points for, no, let's talk about history. Let's talk about what Columbus did or what the history of white people wiping out everyone who's not white is. Or that Thanksgiving is the most made up and that if you knew the Puritans, you would hate them. Yes. <laughs> yes. They dug up Indians' graves. Exactly. They stole. Which which Greg Bruce is closest? Uh, can I get some water, actually? May I have a little more iced tea? We'll have a check. Thanks. Um, which Greg Bruce is closest to the actual Greg Bruce? Podcast Greg, stand-up Greg, or improv Greg? Um, I think the podcast. Thank you. Well, that was crazy. <laughs> Uh, I think the podcast because sometimes I forget that I'm, you know, I get very close to that state, the jazz state, which is what I want to be in, uh, equipoise, where you're keyed up and focused and it's flowing freely. So you're not having to think about what you're doing Thank you very much. to the point where you're interfering with what you're doing, but you're also not just blabbering. There's, there's some payoff to this. So I think that's closest. Uh, improv, the improv I do, because I don't do a lot of long form. I, I'm with Ryan and I'm in his group and uh, we do whose line short form. Yeah. So that's it. I don't know. No, 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 please. Really? Yeah, the network will take care of it. Alright. Thank you. Uh, and that's a, that's a Doing the improv with those guys is uh, is Islamic art. Islamic art forbids the use of images. You can't have animals or faces or people. But so it's insanely dazzlingly creative within the parameters. Of, if you go to a, a, a medieval mosque and and see the workings on the walls or words they can write the holy word right they can write in arabic and they can make it art and then it's infinite patterns uh, they're trying to recreate the universe the universe is always expressed it's set, uh, such a different idea than western art and, and i feel like with the short form games okay the game is you can't move someone's moving you around but within that there's a million fucking permutations there really are. Yeah, no. You don't have to do the same thing all the time. You, and when you're with Ryan, I work with Jeff Davis, Joel Murray, and Ryan. He used to be Chip Eston, but he's now he's on Nashville. They're also creative. Yeah, Ryan's amazing. I mean, even back in the day, you know, when I was when I first started doing short form, I was still running the club in Seattle, doing theater sports, and we ended up playing the theater sports team from Vancouver. And Ryan was on that team, right. and it was just even then it was just like unbelievable, the most supportive. Would do anything and turn it into something amazing. His grasp of the craft is astounding, and I never stopped learning from him. Uh, I didn't love him when I first started working with him. I thought, Ugh. you know, and I've, thank you. I've come to appreciate that I've seen him take something that I thought was the shittiest, worst, fucking most morbid premise in the history of mankind, and turn it into magic. And now in the show, because Chip's not in the act anymore, Chip and Depp used to do all the singing. 
Oh, okay. well, Chip's gone now because he plays a singer on Nashville, and of course he's a brilliant, the most brilliant piece of casting I've ever seen on television. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I've worked with Chip for 20 years. He was ever playing us his country demos. He wanted to be a country singer. A role came up for a 45-year-old country singer Perfect. on a show about country singers. Perfect. And one of the requirements was just you be sing. able to sing. And fantastic. When I met him, he was playing Buddy Holly on the West End in London. And he had a Shirley MacLaine night. Paul Tripp, or whatever his name was, Paul Hip, was ill. I think he was a heroin addict. But anyway, uh, he was ill. And Chip never told me this story, by the way. I was in a pub in Edinburgh, and I was talking to a cat. And he, he goes, you know Chip Huston? And I said, I do. And he goes, oh, I did Buddy Holly with him on the West End. I was the MC one night. And he goes, do you know how he got started? And I went, no. And he goes, well, he wasn't Buddy Holly. He was understudy. And one night Paul got sick, and they called him at his crib at like six. Curtain rings up at eight, right? He came in for the quickest brush through, and on that night. Well, the singing and, and playing were no problem, because he's, he said, we would push him from scene to scene. Well, buddy, you gotta go to New York now, and, and shove him. And he, okay, this way. Because he couldn't get the, he had the blocking. Yeah, yeah. Like, she only playing claims. She didn't know the, the blocking the night she had to fill in and oh, draw the game. But she's such a fucking ham bone yeah. that she's, she murdered the crowd. And, and Chip did the same thing. So Chip's gone. Now me and Ryan singing the show. So we take turns. We, we let Jeff hold down the singing. But every night it's either me or Ryan. And much to my horror and disappointment, He's a brilliant singing uh, improver. I mean, I've seen him sing for 20 years because sure. he used to do it recently. But now we're up on stage and Frank Sinatra, Neil, Neil, uh, 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 Diamond? Oh, no, uh, Jeff is Neil Diamond. Neil Young? Uh, no, the, uh, Gordon Lightfoot. Oh, oh, He yeah. does Gordon Lightfoot and people are paralyzed with his Gordon Lightfoot impression. He's amazing. And he thinks of rhymes, he sings on key, he kills. But of course, you know, going back to when you and I really kind of met when we were both in the comedy underground in San Francisco, you and McShane. Getting on to 30 years ago. You, I know. And <laughs> you and Mike McShane were just you were astounding to me. You know, I'd only been doing improv for like three years at that point. Yeah. And you you guys, you were with Faultline, and then when that went away, you guys joined our crew. Right. And I was working with Deb and Mike, who'd been doing it right. for, you know, 10, 15 years already. And then you guys came in and it was like, who are these guys? And it was, and I remember, and I've mentioned this even on my show, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, uh, you know, we would have nights when Robin would come in as our host for our show, yeah. and you're the only two guys I've ever seen that could run rings around town. Even oh, yeah. back then, it was unbelievable. It was great when Robin would come in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that, when you work with someone closely like that, and Mike and I work together, we still do, we did, we were in Edinburgh last day. Although he plays with another group now, and I, we were in separate groups, so we don't play as often together as we might. Uh, I was saying it the other day, and it, it applies to that as well. Uh, we were in good form because we work together so much, and we listen to each other so hard. Uh, I was saying it about Who's Line uh, when we were taping it, because people hilariously say to me, don't you miss Who's Line? I'm like, no. Why don't you miss it? Well, one, it's still on. And two, I work with everybody, including the English people, all the fucking time. Like, we did Edinburgh last year. We did a three-week run with the English group. 
and I play. I sit in with them when I'm in England, and I sit in with Mike, and I sit in with the group Mike's in, Paul Merton's group, and I have my, another group I'm in with. So like, yeah, I, I can't shake any of them. Like I am still working with the same people. <laughs> but I said, I don't have to look behind me. We're like the Showtime Lakers. Not that I'm so great. It's just that we're familiar, so I can bounce past backwards, and I know Paul and Mike. Or Wayne Brady or Ryan Styles is there. Right. There's no worrying about it. Yeah. And that makes improv. Oh, absolutely. Jeff Davis wow. always said that. Well, I always say to him, "You got very lucky, Jeff, because you you joined the Beatles. <laughs> you, you know, Pete Best got fired, and, and you, you got to join us. Not that he's not a great improviser. Of course he is, and he's on Dan Harmon's show. And yeah. Uh, but uh, uh, he always says to people. They go, well, we, we know we want to be an improv, or we want to do improv. And he goes, be in a group, but make sure you're not the best one in the group. Make sure there's someone who's kicking your ass over here. Yeah. And with McShane and me, that was what it was. Like, I was chasing him around the room. <laughs> and so when Robin got up there, we both were like, let's chase him. Let's make him, let's make him work. But don't let him just glide. Yeah. Push, push, push. And then those shows were hilarious. Because oh, we would, and I did one at the punchline. I'm going to start bawling, but I won't. Uh, at Christmas time, I was doing the podcast. And I'm sitting on that stage, Mark, and I go, right there, Robin had me in a headlock. And I go, and he was sweaty and hairy, and he was wearing one of his long sleeve when he sat in with us. Yes. And I was like, you can't. Imagine how exciting and exultant a moment it is when the sweaty man, who's strong as a wrestler, yeah. grabs you and, goes, oh, oh, oh. and you're doing Shakespeare and he's... Yeah, no, we were, I recounted an article I wrote for the Bryn Magazine after he passed away about probably eight months before I was on stage with him at the Brockport and we were doing freeze tag and we got frozen in one of those positions where we literally were kind of like this, mirroring each other, but... Literally nose to nose, yeah. and it was like one of those sort of eternity moments yeah. where we're staring at each other's eyes, just waiting to see who is going to get tagged out. Right, and it's just like that, just kind of hangs with me, you know. Who's going to say what? Oh, I know. It's so awful. Well, I'm I, I was in England when he died. I was in Edinburgh, and they, I did one interview uh, for Sky News. They wanted me to go on Newsnight and talk about him, and I wouldn't do it. One, because although I knew him and I did a lot of gigs with him, and, and the more I started thinking about it, the more I remembered all the fucking gigs right? we did together. Yeah, yeah. I didn't feel like I was as close as Bob Cat or Rick Overton or one of his good, good buddies. And I didn't want to fill in for that, one. And two, they were really fixated on the drugs and the depression. And I think that misses entirely... And on my show, I said, because they asked me a question, and it wasn't, it was obviously someone with a, being told what to say. She went, well, Robin had a dark side as well, did he not? And I went, we all have a dark side. You know, I, I danced around it. I was like, I'm not going there. So on my show, I said, I'll tell you as a dark side, Dick fucking Cheney, that's who has a fucking dark side. I go, would Barack Obama Predator Jones a fucking wedding party? That's a dark side. I go, Angela Merkel has a fucking dark side. I go, when Robin was coked up and running around, did you, at any moment were you not happy with what was going on? Yeah, I go, if drugs helped him come out of the shyness, 
or it was part of the process of getting him to be the genius that he was, hooray for fucking drugs. I go, fuck you saying he had a dark side. Why are comedians not allowed to... Oh, oh, I see. It's immediately... It was a, it, it was, he did too much drugs and that made him sad and he killed himself. Well, why is his life simplified to this fucking bullshit? Yeah, yeah. Why is he not allowed to be a complicated individual with a million sides? And, and don't start with the dark side. There's, there's evil people in this world who are never called out on their evil. Evil. And he was the least evil person. He was the most buoyant, beautiful spirit you'll ever... When you, whenever you saw him, were you not happy? Oh, Mark. Oh, Mr. Hershon. Hello. And you'd start talking, and he would bullshit. And maybe he was shy at first, because he was often shy at first. And then an hour later, he's on top of you fucking you in the ass on stage. And, you know, it was like, absolutely. I don't hate that. Uh, I, I hate that they cast people after, oh, well, he was in the darkest moments. He had every right to be depressed. I'm depressed all the time. We're comedians. There's, you know, it was like when, what's his name? Poor Mitch Hedberg. When poor Mitch Hedberg died, all comedians are prone to being drug out of town. It's part of the, no, they're not. Everyone in America, everyone in the world. Um, if we went around this room here, I could find you five drug addicts or five depressed people. Yeah, but they're, they're uh, driven to find the polarity in people. Well, if they're that funny, they've got to have this real... Well, all of a sudden, it's Lenny Bruce, Bill Hicks, Mitch Hedberg. Oh, they're these tortured geniuses and shit. Bill died of cancer. Yeah, that's right. Lenny Bruce was killed by gangsters who gave him dope that was too strong. Because they knew he'd fucking take it. Because he was snitching on people. Yeah. Mitch, Mitch OD, he did not want to die. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I mean, it just it drives me fucking mad. Yeah. Uh... And if you're a performer, of course, you know. Oh, look, it, the highest highs, but then when they're alone, Lowest, uh, yeah, you're Pagliacci. Yes. You're crying alone yeah. in the room, and like, of course, there's an element of truth to that. Sometimes you're sitting in the dressing room after a show, and there's been 300 people out there, and you're all by yourself. And, but I don't sink to the bottom of the depths of my being at that moment. I think, well, there's another show. That's right. And you have to prove yourself again and again. But I can totally understand being so depressed, you want to take your own life. And if you do, that's your prerogative. Fuck the fucking media with their... Dick Cavett said some really nice things about him, which I didn't expect, although Dick Cavett's a very bright guy. Yeah, yeah. But if, when he talked about the depression and everything, he was spot the fuck on. And he knew him well enough to fucking talk about it. And it was in Time Magazine or something. And I thought, this is one of the more coherent things I've read. And Joan Rivers, too. Like I didn't know Joan Rivers real well, but I knew her. I worked with her for a year on TV and, oh, she's a bitch, oh, she's a right-winger, oh, uh, she had too much surgery and all this shit. She was an insecure person like anyone else. She had her own issues with the way she looked, obviously. She was the most kind, generous, unbelievably interested in comedy and what other people were doing in comedy. Worked on her act every night. She did a set the night before she died. That's not someone who's checked out. She had... Two, three TV shows and a web show. Oh, yeah. When she died, she was 81. She was, Her career was on a huge upswing. Yeah, no, I mean... <laughs> yeah. when, when her accidental death happened. Yes. We were all expecting five more years, ten more years of her oh, fucking absolutely. marching out there and fucking calling people faggots and shit. Yes. 
It's Betty White who refuses to <laughs> What is her deal? Where's her dark stuff? Yeah. I mean, you know, like, they don't, uh, Joan was never anything but lovely to me. And my biggest regret is that I didn't spend more time being a stalker and stalking the shit out of Robin and Joan so I could have had more time with them because yeah. they were such magnificent spirits. I think that's the big regret we all have at the end of our life. David Hockney had the best quote. David Hockney's quite old now and lives like not even in London anymore. Like he lives outside of London. I don't think he sees that well. He's probably 80 something. And he said, but he lived here for years, right? I love it. He learned to drive in LA and there's a Huel Hauser where he goes out with David Hockney. And David Hockney shows him where he filmed, where he uh, painted Pear Blossom Highway, the famous painting of the oh, yeah. road sign. David Hockney's got a fucking dog on his lap. Huel's got the other dog. David Hockney can't see. And he's driving like a fucking maniac. And you can tell he was like, one, excited to be with him, and two, mortified. <laughs> then they get there, and of course he's he's setting up the camera. He shows him exactly how to do it. No, no, we're going to do it. This is how I did it. Like the, He says, no one at the end of their life goes, God, I wish I'd been a banker. <laughs> I wish I'd spent more time, you know, banking. Absolutely. And, and I really feel like, you know, you see people on the road or you run into people and then you think, I wish I Because when, when, when Robin died, when Joan died, now I end up having this conversation with all the comics. I'm sure you have too. One by one by one. Kevin, Kevin Meany, Rick, Bobcat, oh, you know. Well, Johnny Steele used to ride bikes with him. Like all the time. Like up to three weeks before he died. You know, it's just like, and how many times he hit a, how many times he hit us oh, every week? Every week. Yeah. So, yeah. What did Lord Buckley say? Pe- people are the are what is it? Nature's garden or whatever. People. Now, at the end of your life, you're never gonna go. I wish I had a lot of money, or I wish I had a fucking sitcom or whatever. <laughs> I think. Uh, who can you meet and who can you talk to and? I don't know. Now I'm getting way too philosophical, but that's when you bring death up. Exactly. But, but getting back to the book and the podcast. Yes. And then I have to go. Uh, the the biggest difference for me, Mark, has been when I do stand up, and still when I do stand up, I don't go into the talk to people beforehand in the show. If I see them, I will. Right. And I don't go out after and sign autographs and shake hands. The podcast. I shake hands with everybody in the audience before the show, and I, after the show, I make myself available and I talk to everybody. And why is like that? Babe Ruth. So where, why is that difference? Why is it? It's a more personal connection, and the proof of it is that, like Jurist used to say about his stand-up act, other people are uh, 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 Macy's or whatever. I'm a boutique. <laughs> I'm a boutique. It's me and Jennifer. And Ryan and Matt, who aren't really as much producers as they record it and they put it out, because they don't tell me what to say, or a producer would actually go, yeah. don't do this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or, I'm not putting that in. Yeah, they're just facilitators. Yeah, they're, they, they, they've done everything to make me do it. I, I totally give them credit for starting me on this. Uh, the proof is that when I go to shows, like I was just in Boston, and uh, without going into a long story, I, I was starting to go into the audience like I do to talk to everybody, and I couldn't get 
from away from the entrance because everyone came over to me and started giving me poetry books. By the end, I had 20 poetry books. And I took them all on stage, and I read. You were listening I heard, to this. I heard. So I, yeah. I read from each of them. Yes. And I literally couldn't move because people waylaid me. Normally, I go through the crowd. Some people don't know who I am. I'm like, cheer up. Yeah. It's a comedy show. And then in England, of course, people are shy, and they, no one's ever come out and done this, ever, in England. And they'll go, you know, and I'll go, part of the punishment you have to meet me and then walk and I think stand up's a magic trick if you go to if you do a corporate gig and you eat dinner with the people you're doing the stand up for before the gig they never ever like your show because they've seen you yes. and they see behind the curtain yes. they don't know the facade you're throwing up and all the magic tricks you're doing Podcast isn't a magic trick. It's from the heart. And to talk to everybody beforehand changes their perception of what I'm saying so much. It's just profound. Now they're watching it like, no, 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 he just came over and talked to us. Yeah, yeah. Let's hear this. Yeah, you're a person as opposed to an act. Yeah. And then after, like in Boston, I said, Austin, give me a minute after the show and I'll come right back out. And I did. And I talked to everybody, and I ended up getting drunk with a couple of people, getting high with them, and then they fucked off, and that was that. But it's like, so now I meet almost everyone that I perform for. So it's like being in the USO constantly. I'm starting to get a vague understanding of why Bob Hope is so obsessed with performing. Because he was absolutely that person. Whatever you can say about him, and he was a superb businessman, maybe the, maybe the greatest businessman that was ever a comedian. Him and Dean Martin, because they had all the money. Yeah. <laughs> all of it. Um, when Bob Hope played for the troops, which he did almost exclusively for at one point in his career for about seven, eight years, only the troops and live radio shows. Uh, I met an actress. She's in her sixties. She'd been to Vietnam with Hope. She goes, "We got to Vietnam, and it had been a long fucking flight." We went to Europe, we went to Europe, and it took a while to get to Vietnam. Plane lands. Every, all of us went to the hotel. He threw his bags down and went right to the hospital. Really? So the next day, we're all at the hospital. He's brought us along because we're the hot chicks. And the boys want to see the chicks. And there's a guy there, and his face is blown off his shit. She goes, I started bawling. Right? And she goes, Hope, very quietly. Come here, honey. Took me outside and went, Never in front of the men. We're here to give them a lift. Ever, ever cry again in front of the men. And she was like, oh no, he was the real deal. The men meant everything to him. Amazing. He's a fascist and he didn't stay with the times. And by the 70s, he's a parody almost. And by the time we were old enough to appreciate him, it was like, He's just this grouchy old pro-war. Yeah. You know, he hangs out with Agnew and, you know, <laughs> you know, he wasn't cool. But the truth is, the connection he had with his generation and that audience oh, yeah. was unassailable. And look at, there's a reason why he was the biggest performer in the world. Oh, yeah. I mean, I love his movies. When his movies are genius. And the fact that, you know, Woody Allen patterned his persona. Lifted it. Lifted it. Around him. Yeah. Lifted yeah. it. A coward. <laughs> A lecherous coward. 
I have a great story from I was doing a, a rewrite uh, years ago with uh, Tom Shadyak, the director. He had yeah. he hadn't yet done his first feature film. This is a movie we were writing for Fox Television, and he was the youngest writer that Hope had, had hired, and he was still writing for him up until Hope stopped right. performing. And he said one night I get a call at home here in L.A. It's like seven o'clock. Hope is in Cleveland. And he goes, uh, Tommy, I need a line for uh, the mayor of uh, Cleveland. And he goes, okay. Uh, so he's kind of fumbling. He comes up with something. He goes, he can hear in the background, uh, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the stage. Mr. Paul goes, thanks, kid. That's great. And he hangs up the phone. Walked right on and told him. I did a, I did a uh, doc on him last year, and I interviewed a bunch of the surviving writers, all of whom were in their 70s and 80s, and his press agent, who's still alive. He's 85. And they told me a million stories like that. And that they begged him to get a fax machine when fax machines came out. Because before that, it would be hours on the phone. And he never spoke. All you'd hear is scribbling. And he had the system, Buffo, Super Buffo. Just, you know, and everything. And if you were on the payroll, you were on the payroll 24 hours. China, wherever he was, the phone would ring, 4 in the morning. I need 15 mound jokes. Yeah, well, was, you know, I need a big boy up front, not to my parents. His, his, you know, that famous line, you wouldn't say that if my writers were here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he knew that. And he, uh, you know, the difference was that uh, Benny had the two guys in the, in the 30s, and he paid them a lot. And they were his dedicated writers. And Benny was a very funny person. Benny was brilliant at knowing exactly what would work for him. If the line didn't work for him, it's, that's Mary's line. That's, that's Rochester's line. That's John's line. That ain't my line. And he was always right. They were like, it wasn't that he was a great writer. It was that he was, who knew? Yeah. And Hope was like, just this, he just sucked material in. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like some kind of black hole. Yeah. Right? And it was all his. Yeah. But he was able to collate it. Yeah. And would sit there with sheaves of fucking paper and just, Amazing. and then put it together. My favorite picture of the members from this 80s book. My friend Richard used to have. And they'll give you an idea of what year it is. Judy Tanuta and Larry David are stand-ups in it. Okay. Yeah, so it's 88. Yeah, yeah. I wrote around Comic Wives. Remember that book by yes. Betsy? Yeah, yeah. So they threw a few old guys in to keep it real. It's Richard Lewis. It's oh, you know. yeah. And it's Hope. And of course, he's still performing then. I saw him then. And he's in his tuxedo. And he's basically like in a broom closet. And he's looking at his set list. And that gave me a hard on. That's hilarious. Because he's... Yes. Right. This one, this one, this one. Okay. I want to tell you something. Yeah. Yeah. The, the point of the documentary was, he hasn't had a reappraisal. The Marx Brothers got a reappraisal. They, they get one every five years. Uh, Hicks has got his huge reappraisal. Pryor got his two years ago. Uh, Harlan is, is due for his because he's yeah. been dead about six years, five years. Harlan, well, although Kelly's doing the one woman yes. show. When yes. she's done with that, and in a year's time, there'll be a box set. And, yeah. You know, we all, you, you get reappraised, and it's, and it's and quite right. When we were little, you know, it was, you can see Abbott and Costello movies on TV. No one shows those anymore. Yeah, it's almost like, it's almost like Hope lived a little too long, right? Too many people kind of saw him at the end or it's like, I don't get it. Yeah. I interviewed Margaret because she's on one of the last specials. And she went into great detail about how they put his set together. 
His daughter read him a set. He was on a sound stage with no audience, and they edited it brilliantly so that it looked like he was telling the jokes to Because he was, you know, real old. Yeah. And I said, well, what do you think this, this significance as, you know, not, not a cultural signifier and all that, but she said, you know, for my parents, it was, he was American. Like, Bob, oh, that's what an American is. It's, you know, fucking cocky, rash, blah, blah, blah. She goes, but think about it, Greg. What Jay-Z does, there's a phone, and the phone's on stage with you, and you're using it in your act. That's Bob Hope. This is Bob Howard Act for Texaco Hope. The sponsor's name was in his name. That's right. A good deal of the time. That's right. I mean, think of all the, the Oscars that he hosted. And everybody remembers those as the best ones. He, he invented, like, the corporatization of... Yeah, Texaco... All that stuff. Absolutely. Well, Greg, thank you very much. I don't know, we'll <laughs> Seven hours. Yeah, exactly. But again, the book is about editing. The smartest. Oh, there'll be no editing. I run a long podcast. Me uh, too. The smartest book in the world uh, comes out in May. May fifth. May fifth. Uh, single day miles. So celebrate by drinking some tequila and reading Greg's book. Exactly. Uh, also catch the smartest man in the world. Uh, iTunes. Uh, uh, GregCroops.com. GregCroops.com. Uh, Greg Proofs Film Club, gregproofs.com, and uh, what else can we plug? Uh, I have a, a special for Musso and Franks from last year. That's so, right, that's right. Uh, I, I shot it right here in Hollywood at the oldest restaurant in Hollywood, and it was, uh, it, there's a lot about Hollywood history in it and shit like that. So. Excellent. Well, Greg, thanks so much. It's been great catching up with you. Thank you, Mark. And uh, look forward to talking to you again. Appreciate it. So go get Craig's book, The Smartest Book in the World, won't you? Catch his Smartest Man in the World and Greg Proops' Film Club podcasts. And now enjoy this word from our sponsor. Hello, friends. Whether you are a believer or not in all of this global climate change malarkey, there's no denying that the world's weather has taken on an odd end-of-days look and feel. A day that's bright and balmy one moment can change into a dark and stormy with no warning at all. Which is why the design team at Henderson's Pants has come up with a new exciting breakthrough. Poncho Pants. Yes, for the first time in trouser history, or trousery as we like to say, you can own a stylish pair of pants fit for any business meeting or social occasion, which is also equipped with a sturdy pullover poncho that not only comes with a hood, but is 100% waterproof to boot. The poncho, super thin and made of high-density mylar, is compressed using Henderson's patented microfold technology and tucked into the rear waistband of the pants. Now, at the first drop of moisture, simply reach behind your own back like this and with a good stiff yank on the poncho, as if giving yourself, ow, a Melvin or a wedgie, well, you unfurl the garment over, this hurts, un sorry, unfurl the garment over your head and down in front of yourself. You'll be as right as rain and dry as a bone, ready to get on with the business at hand. Henderson's Poncho Pants are perfect for both men and women. Be sure to check out our other foul weather garments, the Skinny Jean Serape, the Coverall Cords, and our Denim and Duster Western Combo. 
Originally designed for Neil Sedaka, Gene Kelly, Credence Clearwater Revival, and anyone else who gets those references, <laughs> Henderson's Poncho, Poncho Pants. Pants are available anywhere cold fronts and warm fronts like to smack into each other. That's Henderson's, dressing on the left and on the right since 1837 because we're just that big. And now back to Sackatash. As much as I personally like the folks at Henderson's Pants, we have had to run their commercials for free because they're going through a Chapter 11 reorganization and can't pay their bills, and yet we still have a contract with them. If you'd like to help offset the production costs for Succotash, since they can't, there are several ways to contribute, all of them accessible by visiting our homepage at SuccotashShow.com. You can do your shopping at Amazon, for example, just by clicking on the Amazon banner at the top of our page to get over there and they will give us a percentage of the sales from anything you buy. You can also just give us a straight-up donation by clicking on the blue Donate button that's in the upper right-hand portion of our homepage. And then there's the Succotashery, the home for all of our merch. That's also on the right-hand side of the page, just a little further down. Incidentally, if you'd like to hear more from Bill Haywatt, our esteemed booth announcer, he's been dabbling, let's say, with installments of his own... I guess it's a podcast... That's what you'd call it. Uh, we're going to talk more about it in uh, upcoming Succotash Epi 110. But in the meantime, you can hear what he's got going on as a feature in the Strange Times podcast at strangetimeshow.com. Time now for the second burst o durst this episode. In this segment, Will's on about the rampant scourge of what he calls oversharers. Hey, guys. Will Durst here to warn you about the raging epidemic sweeping this nation like a toxic tornado. You can see the tragic sufferers of this dread affliction staggering dazedly down streets, walking into poles or through glass doors, oblivious to everything around them. Often they wander into the paths of oncoming traffic. Sometimes they're behind the wheel of the traffic that is oncoming. Of course, we're talking about the rampant scourge that is oversharing. A communicable affliction masquerading as a form of communication. These poor self-absorbed casualties are easy to spot by their bowed heads and tendency to stare fixedly into their laps, faces bathed in an eerie glow while furiously twitching their thumbs. At least we hope that's what they're doing. Everyone's familiar with the harrowing evidence of oversharing. Blurry photos of a runny mushroom parmesan risotto. Noble pets forced to wear demeaning holiday-themed costumes. Detailed records of various bodily fluid eliminations. Extraneous particulars the rest of us neither need to know nor want to see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lines to new movie openings are often long and slow. That does not rate a hashtag. You saw a Canadian squirrel. Terrific. We'll alert Ottawa. Buses can be crowded. What next? Blue sky, sand on a beach? Oh, goody. A picture of a blue sky and sand on a beach. You're right. That is an awesome Bloody Mary. But unless you're bringing me back a sip, don't expect me to like it. And if you hit me with that selfie stick one more time, you're going to permanently stream a bird's eye view of your large intestine. We haven't even addressed the issue of drunk posting, a unique form of social and career sabotage. So please, people, only you can stamp out oversharing, a self-inflicted disease with no known cure. Maybe someday an electromagnetic pulse will come and wash all our posts away, and people will be forced to actually talk to one another. Again, perish the thought. For Succotash, the comedy podcast podcast, I'm Will Durst. 
Thanks, Will. Get more at willdurst.com. You can also catch him tweeting at Will Durst on Twitter. This has been a long episode of Suckatash, but if you've stuck it out this long, you're my new bestest friend. How about that? All we have to finish off this installment is a visit to the Tweet Sack. Hello, Tweety. First up are a couple of requests for our Suckatash zipper pulls. We still have a few left. Got one from Jason Crane from the First Laughs podcast. Also got a request from the Paint It Black podcast crew. And I swear I will get those along with several others out that are way overdue. I would blame the network for these delays in getting our merch out, but we're not on a network. I got a thank you email from John Adder, the creator of the new To the Manor Born by Robots podcast, which I reviewed a couple of weeks ago on Splitsider and Huffington Post. And I think I'll have a clip up for you guys in the next episode. It seems to have helped boost listenership, he says, which is great. It's a very creative show. Keep up the good work, John. He informs me that Epi 4 is on its way shortly. Got a note from the guys over at the Comatose podcast asking if we'd clip them and give them a shout out. And yes... Next Succotash Clips episode, you are in, Comatose Podcast. Monica Homburg, the hostess with the mostess, or hotness with the bodness, you, you choose, uh, who runs the Dazed and Confused podcast, is spending a couple of months in New York City from Vancouver, British Columbia, and asked if I could connect her to any podcasters I know in the area. So I have introduced her to Lionheart of The Big Cat Show and Rich Prado of The Anti-Semantic Show so far. If you're in that area of the country, want to connect with a sharp gal that's got her shit together, reach out to her yourself at Monica Homburg on Twitter or drop me a line at mark at markhershon.com. I'll pass along your info and you guys can connect. The Four Listeners podcast just had their 200th episode. Congratulations. And our friends at Illusionoid just hit their 200,000th download. Congratulations, boys. And they've got their Epi 100 coming up, too. We've got a note from the Crest Theater in Westwood, California. They asked me if I would let folks know that they're celebrating the Orson Welles centennial with a screening of his Touch of Evil, which is classic Orson Welles featuring not only his direction, but starring as well as a narcotics officer. If you've never seen that, do try and check it out if you're in the L.A. area. And also see what else they've got going on. Go up to CrestWestwood.com for more information on the shows they've got. All right, let's get to the rundown of those folks kind enough to tweet, retweet, favorite, DM, like, follow, or otherwise mention Succotash this past week or so in the social media sphere. Lindsay Minaj, Kaza Mirth, Musings of a Shibe, San Diego Sabrina, Beverly Sanchez, Wiretech Girl, Salty Language Pod, Gormless Mook, Mimi Toll, Samantha Pet, News Biscuit, the Wrong Foot Podcast, Mobius Coffee, Aaron O'Connor, Podcasts Are the Best, Davian Dent, Shrin666, Meet My Good Friend Pod, Godsmacked, Eat KS, Ed Wallach, Utter Tosh Pod, our associate producer Tyson Sainer, hello Tyson, Stranger Conversation, Radio Dan Delgado, Unadulterated BS, Sibling Rivalry, Millennial Pride, and Wheelbarrow Full of Dicks. Thanks again to Greg Proops for shaving off so much of his time for our chat. And thanks to you for shaving off so much of your time to listen to us. We'll be back soon with Epi 100, another Succotash Clips episode. Until then, thanks for passing the Succotash. 
You've been listening to Suckatash, the comedy podcast podcast with your host, Mark Hershon. Brought to you by Henderson's Pants and... Imagine your company's name right here. Find us on the web at SuckatashShow.com, on iTunes, on Stitcher Smart Radio, and on SoundCloud. You can also hear us streaming and like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Suckatash Show. Email us at MA at SuckatashShow.com or call into the Suckatash hotline at our non-toll-free call number 818-921-7212 Suckatash is produced and engineered with the kind assistance of Joe Paulino through the auspices of Studio P. Sausalito, home of the hit. Our associate producer is Tyson Saner. Our musical director is Scott Carvey. Our booth assistant is Kenny Durges. Until next time, I am your loyal booth announcer, Bill Haywatt, reminding you to please pass the succotage. Goodbye.